Good afternoon. I'm so glad you're with us today. Uh, my name is Bill Drips, and I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship Church, and we are delighted to have you with us today. If you have small children, we're delighted if you'd like to keep them in the service. I'll just have Dan in the back turn up the volume, and we'll be good. If you would prefer the, um, if you would prefer, we have some folks in the nursery downstairs who would be happy to take care of them. So you out the, the left side here in the back and down the stairs and wind your way around through the hallway. And I think it's basically right under where I'm standing. So if you're spatially oriented, you should be in good shape. If you need step-by-step directions, I'm not your man. One thing, oh, yes, um, to get the most out of this talk, you may need a Bible, an outline, and a pen. And John has those uh, things if you need them, and uh, he'd be happy to get them to you. Um, let's see. This week we conclude a three-part sermon series on what if your children walk away from the faith. Here's the roadmap. The first Sunday, I talked about the root problem, which is deception. It started back in Genesis 3 when the serpent deceived Eve and has continued down to us ever since. Last Sunday, we talked about a key issue for us to address, and that's wisdom. Wisdom to deal with Satan's deceptions. And this Sunday, I'll talk about when wisdom fails, God's faithfulness prevails. When wisdom fails, God's faithfulness prevails. And if you've got the church Bible, uh, we're going to start and uh, and go through Judges 13 through 16. I'm not going to be reading every verse, but if you've got the church Bible, you can turn to page 137. That's where it starts, in uh, Judges chapter 13. So when parents do everything right, and the first thing that we see about uh, Samson's life is that his parents listen to God and obey. Um, One of the real keys in reading a story like Samson's is to realize that the ancient writers didn't include every detail. But they did include a lot of detail because that points out what they thought was important. So in other words, for us, writing and printing is cheap. For them, it was expensive. They were very careful about what they wrote down. So Judges 13, um, uh, 3 through 5, And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now this passage in Judge Judges describes the Nazarite vow. For homework, you can read Romans 6, where God actually sets down the, the what a Nazarite vow is. Basically, What Nazarite means, the word Nazarite is taken from the Hebrew word for consecrate or dedicate. So one of the things that we conclude from uh, their 
using that God using the the reference to the Nazarite and talking about these things is that Samson was to be consecrated and dedicated to the Lord. So at this point, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you should be connecting this to Paul's comment in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that we are to be a living sacrifice. So the idea is that uh, um, in terms of paying for our sin, it doesn't exactly help us very much if we have to die. (laughs) And so because we can't, God wants to save us, he has other ways of executing the death penalty. And in the Old Testament, there was the uh, death penalty for various animals which were sacrificed. In the, in the New Testament, uh, we see that Christ actually paid that penalty for us. So what the Christian is supposed to do is to live his life as though he had been sacrificed or though he was a constant sacrifice to God. That's what it means to be dedicated or consecrated. We should be put to death before God. Instead, Jesus was our sacrifice. So we, in turn, should live as a living sacrifice. Our whole lives should be dedicated or consecrated to God. Now, the fact that God had called Samson to deliver Israel was stupendous news. Um, You realize, of course, that at this time, Israel had been 40 years under the domination of the Philistines. And so the fact that God was sending someone to save Israel was truly stupendous news. And uh, I won't take the time to read it, but if you go later in chapter 13 here, the husband seems to be very careful that nothing was lost between him and the angel. He asked for confirmation, and he signaled his obedience by offering a sacrifice in worship. So Samson had pretty good parents. They listened to God, they obeyed, they really tried to get it right. Uh, what more can you ask, really, of parents? So they, dedica- so they dedicate themselves, they dedicate this child- their, their children to the Lord. Parents dedicate their children to the Lord. Um, every parent ought to be dedicating their children to the Lord. You don't need a visitation from an angel to realize that's what you ought to be doing. They are a gift from God, and we in turn need to dedicate them back to the Lord. Now, in this case, uh, they named their child Samson. Now, Samson is literally the sun man. That's what the, it's a combination of, of two Hebrew words, one which is the, the root from which sun comes, and the other is the root from which man comes. This is the sun man. <clears throat> now, in polytheistic society, this would be something like calling him the son of God. But the Hebrews were monotheistic, so it probably meant something like bright child or golden boy. So how many of you would be willing to name your child golden boy? Or how about bright, bright child? Now, you might say about him, that your child, that, oh, he's, he's very bright. But you probably wouldn't name him that. 
course, then you probably didn't get a visitation from an angel either. <clears throat> so they knew not to worship the sun. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, it says, And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under heaven. In other words, all of these heavenly bodies are things that God created for the benefit of all people. You're not to worship them. So in calling him the sun man, they are not thinking of worship. They are thinking of a son dedicated to God. Now, with Samson, God took it a notch further. With Samson, um, he raised, he was to be raised a Nazarite, but his mother also was to avoid anything alcoholic or unclean. And the point is that Samson was to be a Nazarite not just from birth, but from his conception. In other words, the Nazarite vow is normally something an adult would take on themselves uh, to, because they wanted to do something special with God. Um, and in this situation, it was a vow that, uh, that his parents basically took for him and they raised him from conception as a Nazarite. So the writer is giving us every indication that Manoah and his wife were exemplary parents. They realized that God had appeared to them and that what they had here in Samson was somebody really, really special. Now, I know every parent thinks that their kid is special. I mean, I think my kids are special. Now, I got grandkids. I think they're really special. <laughs> so do you guys think your kids are special? Anybody want to own up to saying your kids are not so special? <laughs> Yeah, everybody thinks their kids are special. And yet, and yet, Samson was something really special. So when parents do everything right, parents listen to God and obey, parents dedicate children to the Lord, and then children start well. Let's look a little bit further down in Judges uh, 13, 24 through 25. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him, stir him in Mahanendan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So by the time he is an adult, he appears to be a man of God led by the Spirit. So who does this remind you of? As you hear about Samson's story, who does this remind you of? Who else had an angel appear to them and forecast his birth? Who else said that this was going to be a savior of Israel? Well, maybe you think about John the Baptist. His birth was foretold to his parents. You remember his dad went into the, the, the Holy of Holies and uh, to do the, the, the work in there and, um, and came out he couldn't speak because God had appeared to him. John the Baptist clearly knew God from the womb. You remember when uh, he was still in utero and Mary visited Elizabeth, the baby started jumping up and down. Do you moms really notice that when the baby jumps up and down? 
Yeah, probably so. Probably so. So he knew God from the womb. He had many Nazarite features in his life. We don't know for for sure whether or not he took the Nazarite vow, but it seemed very much like that in terms of how he lived with the locust and wild honey and wearing camel's hair and all that. And John the Baptist... John the Baptist was not just the greatest of the prophets, he actually saved Israel by his prophecy because he pointed to the one that was going to do it. So just it just really connects with John the Baptist. But Samson is even more connected with Jesus himself. If you remember, Jesus' birth was divinely foretold. He started pretty well as a child, didn't he? By age 12, he was confounding the teachers of the temples with his, with his questions. He started well as a child, and he actually did save Israel and the rest of the world. So Samson foreshadows Christ. He is a Christ, a failed Christ. His death did temporarily save Israel. And his failure can help us understand Jesus better. Now, a lot of times we don't pick up the degree to which Jesus is connected with these Old Testament passages. And part of the reason is that uh, is, is the difficulty in the language. What does Christ mean? Christ is a Greek word. It simply means anointed. In Hebrew, you probably already know the Hebrew word for anointed, don't you? It's Messiah. The Jews did not crown kings. They anointed them. They did not crown prophets. They anointed them. In this announcement of Samson to his parents, he was a Messiah. In fact, he's identified as someone who's going to save Israel. What does the word Jesus mean? It's a transliteration into Greek of the Hebrew word for Savior. So Jesus was named the anointed Savior of Israel. You see the connection to this guy who was named Sun Man, Savior of Israel? Yeah, the connection's really strong there. So when parents do everything right and wisdom fails... And wisdom fails. And we begin to see this uh, fairly quickly in Samson's life. Uh, In chapter 14, he seeks an occasion to, uh, to start the fight with the Philistines. We don't know exactly what's going on here. One would assume there was some sort of treaty between the Philistines and the Israelites that governed their relation and that uh, Samson intended to upset those arrangements. Um, That's one possibility. So Samson um, decides to marry a Philistine, which gets his parents all upset. But in chapter 14, verse 4, his father and mother, it says, his father and mother did not know it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So he goes down to seek his Philistine wife, and on the way, he meets a lion. 
Now, what does he do with this lion? I mean, have you ever been face to face with a lion? I mean, I've seen him on the other side of bars. And I definitely was looking to make sure those bars were in good shape. They are big. They are scary. Really scary. I wouldn't mind meeting one at about 200 yards with a 30-odd six and a scope. Closer than that, I'm not interested. Samson met this lion, and it says he ripped this lion like one would rip a young goat apart. Took him out. So he he comes back sometime later uh, to pick up his Philistine wife. And in Judges 14, 8 and 9, it says, Some days later he returned to take her, meaning his wife, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of lion, in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So why is that in there at all? What is, what is the point of that? The point of that is that part of the Nazarite vow is you do not touch a dead body at all. In fact, if you do that, it invalidates all the time you have spent performing your Nazarite vow up to that point. And you got to go through all these hoorah to make it right. you got sacrifices and cleansings and all this stuff. And once you get all of that done, then you got to start over for the whole length of time you were supposed to do it. It invalidates the whole period beforehand. So it's clear, it's clear that Samson is not being particularly humble and teachable at these points, at this point. Under uh, point two there, I didn't uh, list out the subpoints, but point A is we and our children fail by being angry rather than humble and teachable. And here we see that Samson is not particularly being humble and teachable. In fact, what we see, it's not so much that he violated the regulation, is that he places more importance on satisfying his hunger than on being dedicated to God. In other words, the relative value here, a little bit of illicit honey, obey God. Oh, yeah, honey sounds good. What do you think of somebody that's thinking like that? Yeah, he's, uh, he's not really paying attention, is he? As, as Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, on the way down to uh, picking up his Philistine bride so he can start this uh, Philistine fight with the Philistines, he not only defiles himself, he also defiles his parents. So he gets there, and they... uh, they have a little more elaborate wedding ceremony than we do these days. Uh, they have like a party that lasts for a week. And um, 
he he doesn't uh, he doesn't bring the Hebrew wedding party to the to the thing. So the Philistine parents are very nice and they supply him with a wedding party. Now, evidently, we don't know all this for sure, but evidently the groom was responsible for outfitting his side of the wedding party. So my guess is that the Philistines were trying to make things hard for Samson, and they provided a wedding party of 30 guys, which Samson has to uh, outfit. So Samson proposes a little riddle, and he, uh, he, and, and he, he basically asks them, um, he gives them this, uh, this riddle, um, oh, lost my place, but basically what he's, he's saying is, um, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. Yeah, that's it. And he tells them to explain that riddle. <clears throat> so what's going on here is that Samson is not particularly embarrassed about his sin, is he? In fact, he flaunts his sin with this riddle. God in his graciousness ensures that Samson's sin comes out. And uh, Samson could not keep his big yap shut. He has to brag about it to his wife-to-be. She begs him and begs him and begs him and begs him. And he finally gives in and tells her. She tells all these other guys. So they guess the riddle. And now Samson's got to come up with 30 sets of, of, um, of clothes. So God enables Samson to pay this debt. Uh, he goes down to the next city down the road, Ashkelon, and he kills 30 Philistines and takes all their spoil and, and pays off his debt. But Samson is angry. He's angry that this came out. And so what does he do? He deserts his wife. We and our children fail by being angry rather than being humble and teachable. God is amazingly tolerant of, Saul, of Samson's sin. Uh, you, you, you wonder at God's amazing tolerance. We see God as being this angry God that's going to zap you if you step one inch over the line. Samson has, has, is really pretty far over the line at this point. And God is still enabling him. Uh, to do things like kill 30 guys and take their stuff. But Samson chooses anger rather than teachability and humility. And there's just no doubt that this is a great failing in wisdom. So wisdom fails. We and our children fail by being angry rather than being humble and teachable. Um, I'm sure that, uh, that you, unlike me, have never been angry. And that that's not a real problem for you. Uh, our children often learn our anger from us. And I don't know whether our came, ours came by it uh, naturally or they can't got it from me, but uh, they sure could have got it from me. So, and then we and our children fail by putting ourselves first rather than God. So in Judges 15, um, uh, seven and eight, uh, Samson has gone back to the Philistines to pick up his bride that he deserted. Well, when he deserted, 
his prospective father-in-law married him off to his best man. So she was not really available. Samson was really uh, upset by that. He was really torqued. And so what he said is in in Judges 15, 7, and 8, Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Etan. So he get, you know, he, uh, he, he fought it out with those uh, Philistines that met him when he went to pick up his bride and uh, stormed off into the wilderness just kind of honked off. When someone hurts you, there may be some action that justice requires. But taking personal vengeance on someone who has harmed you will almost always boomerang on you and make it worse. Almost always. If someone hurts you, you can forgive them. Um, and like I say, there might be some restitution that needs to happen. You know, it's not to say that you, the police don't have a function and the courts don't have a function. But if you try to, if you are hurt personally and try to exert, exact the cost of that hurt from other people with personal vengeance, with revenge, it will almost always back, backfire on you. Uh, just uh, by way of an illustration, um, and I may have mentioned this before, and maybe all of you know this, the worst war that Americans ever fought in was not World War II. More Americans died in the Civil War than in any other war America's ever been in. In fact, it was only recently that the total number of Americans killed in all wars was was uh, that the Civil War percentage fell to less than half. But if you take World War II, if you take the Revolutionary War, if you take World War I, if you take Spanish-American War, you add those all together, you don't get to the Civil War. It was a horrendously bloody conflict. It was also a conflict that led to, that, that stemmed from deep, deep divisions. It was, a, it was a war of brother against brother. What happens when brothers fight? Yeah, they don't end up friends. And uh, so this was a, a, a war in which um, there should have been terrible consequences. There was a similar war between the Jews and the Arabs in Pal- Palestine in 48. How's that worked out? They're still fighting that war. Uh, there was a, there's been a war going on in Ireland between the British and the Irish. And that one is slowly cooling off. It's, it's amazing. They are actually making progress on that. That war actually started about 300 years ago. That thing has gone on for a long, long time. Most wars do not end well. Yet the American Civil War resulted in a healed nation, a more united nation. Why did that happen? It's almost, actually, it's almost unheard of in human history. It's because the victors, led by Lincoln and Grant, forgave the vanquished. 
Um, this is more remarkable if you consider the thing that happened at the end of the Civil War, which was that Lincoln was assassinated. He was probably the most loved president up to that point. And people wanted blood for that one. I mean, they really did. And yet, and yet, Jefferson Davis was never tried or punished. They held him in prison for two years, and then they just let him go. Did you know that, um, that Congress moved to try Robert E. Lee? They actually sent him a subpoena. He forwarded it to Grant. Grant wrote a letter to Congress. He was still the top general of the, human army, of the Union Army. He sat down with the congressional leaders and said, if you go take this one more step, I will resign. And I will let people know why I'm resigning. And career Congressional leaders just kind of folded, folded up their papers and said, no, no, we won't do that. He was the highest ranking general since George Washington. What happened was that the victors forgave the vanquished. Those who had the power to exact a punishment said, we won't do it. You're forgiven. Go home. It's over. And it healed the nation. It healed the nation. Winning the war did not heal the nation. Forgiveness healed the nation. When God wanted to make peace with us, he paid our penalty himself and forgave us. And that is flat out too good to be true. But it is true. It is true. So we and our children fail by putting ourselves first rather than God. We see here where Samson tried to exact vengeance, and that failed. And it always does. We and our children fail. This is the third point, point C, under number two. We and our children fail by not trusting God's goodness. In Judges 16, we have Samson. We have the story of Samson, and at first there's a particular prostitute that he's involved with, and then later in the chapter he's involved with the famous Delilah. Never name your daughters Delilah, please. It seems to me that at this point Samson has forsaken wisdom so completely that he escapes into pleasures and thrills. It's not just about sex. It's illicit sex in the presence of his enemies. When he goes to get a prostitute, he goes into a Philistine town. This is while he's judge of Israel and he's breaking Israel free from the Philistine. He is public enemy number one. But you don't think people knew he was in town? Yeah, they knew he was in town. They all gathered around the house and they said, all right, we're going to wait here and we're going to get him at dawn. Samson got up in the middle of the night. He ripped the city gates down and carried them up to the top of the hill and left them there. In your face, right? He's not only doing the wrong thing, he's flaunting it. This guy is in a joy-riding, thrill-seeking escape. What does he do with Delilah? 
she's continually after him to tell him the secret of his strength. What does he tell her? Oh, yeah, well, tie me up in new ropes. So she ties him up in new ropes. He breaks them loose and, you know, goes and kills all the Philistines. And then he's like, yeah, weave my hair and put it in a net with a pin. And so she does that. She calls in the Philistines. He breaks free. He kills all the Philistines. Why is he doing this? Have you ever seen people engage in stupid behavior like this? It's when all the normal pleasures of life fade and you've got to do something really crazy. We and our children fail by not trusting God's goodness. Samson no longer trusted that God would be good to him. And you know why I think that's so? I think it's because of the ways that he had violated God's trust. And he assumed that God could no longer trust him. So we know how that story ends. He finally tells Delilah the truth about the Nazarite vow and tells them to cut off his hair. And what's interesting is that this was not magic. It wasn't cutting off the hair that did it. It was his rejection of God because then the scripture says that the Lord left him. Grow your hair long all you want. It won't get God on your side. So God in his mercy, and 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 so the Philistines come in, they grab Samson and they gouge out his eyes. But let me tell you this. God in his mercy takes Samson's strength and even his sight, and it's to get his attention. Yes, Samson is injured by hitting the guardrail in his joyride through life. But at least he didn't go over the cliff. And it may be hard to say, but this was a mercy. This was trying to get his attention. So Samson is foolish by choosing anger over humility. He's foolish by putting himself before God and distrusting and by distrusting God's goodness. He eventually wrecks his life. But God is still faithful. So where we are now is that Samson is bound by the Philistines and they have hitched him up to a a grinding mill that they normally hitch an oxen to. And he spends his days grinding out grain, being the uh, steam engine behind the grinding mill. And he's blind. I just think it's uh, so significant that they blinded him. You know why? Because he was the sun man. And the eyes are how the sun gets into the body, right? So that they did is that they, it makes it plain to Samson that he is no longer the sun man. He's no longer the bright child because his life is full of darkness now. That's, some of the symbolism in here is just, uh, it's just really fantastic. So when parents do everything white, right and wisdom fails, God's faithfulness prevails. So God's people respond in Judges 15, 16 through 21. God has finally brought Samson 
to the end of himself. He has taken strength. God has taken his strength. He has taken his sight. He's turned the sun man into sunless man. Finally, Samson turns to God. God's people in here responded. I'm talking about Samson here responding to God. In uh, Judges 16, 21 through 23, or 31, And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon their god and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson our enemy into our hand. And when the people saw it, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. When Samson called, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the middle, the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Ashtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 40 years. So here's Samson ending his life tragically. But the one thing I want to point out here is that Samson died praying to God. God had worked in Samson so that at the end of his life, he had come back and was seeking God's help in accomplishing God's will of saving Israel. Not usually somebody we think of as a, he- as a hero, do we? But yet, but yet, in this subject of God's faithfulness prevailing, God's interpretation also prevails. For in Hebrews 11:32 it says what more shall I say for fa- time would fail t- for me would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah and of David and of Samuel and the prophets. Did you notice that name in there Samson in God's Hall of Fame? Well, it's Hall of Faith actually. You know, it's not about how great we are. It's about being a testimony to God's mercy and giving him glory for his greatness. God includes Abraham, Moses, Samuel, and David on his honor roll. But he also includes Samson. It's not. It's because it's not about what we do for God. 
It's, be, it's because these men put their hope in what God would do for men so undeserving as them. So Samson foreshadows Christ, but Jesus is the real deal. His birth was certainly surrounded by prophecy, but not just one man of God. The prophecies concerning Jesus started in Genesis in the beginning and continues through the end of time. Jesus came as a man with all the limitations that implies, but unlike Samson, he never failed to put God first, even when he preferred otherwise. His life was marked by amazing humility. Amazing humility. He didn't just save Israel for a short time. He saved the whole world, and he did it for all time and all eternity. Put your hope in the one much stronger than Samson. Put your hope in Jesus. So to summarize, when parents do everything right and wisdom fails, God's faithfulness prevails. Parents, when you face the issues that I talked about today, put your hope in the one who works all things together for good. All of you will face times in in raising children where you wonder how it's going to work. Put your hope in the one who works all things together for good. God has never promised to make things work out for our kids like we want them to. He has promised to make things better than our small hopes. Trust him. So when parents do everything right and wisdom fails... God's faithfulness prevails. Let's pray. Father, you are our hope. Father, we want to do what's the right thing. We want to do everything right with our kids. And yet, Father, we know that we are fallible. We know that our children are fallible. So, Father, our hope is in you, that you will work in such a way uh, that our that our children will come to honor and glorify you. And Father, we pray uh, that you would give us the ability to trust you uh, as we as we walk through this life in raising our children. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.